name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Res. Hey, if this is your first time to Res, uh, I'm Father Sean. I'm the rector here at this parish, and it's, we're really glad to welcome you. I'd love to run into you after the service and buy you a cup of coffee or visit for a little bit uh, if you stick around. Uh, last week, we talked about how Jesus gives us access to pray to God in really bold and maybe uncomfortable or new ways for some of us, really giving, us a pe- giving him a piece of our mind. For some of you, it may, you may experience it like this. This week, we're given another parable in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus issues to um, anyone who's in hearing distance about our life of prayer. He's still working on teaching us to pray, right? These inner dispositions that put us before God in a certain kind of relationship. What is it like to pray truly, truthfully, authentically? What is it to pray? Jesus is teaching us in Luke. Uh, Once again, the parable leads off right at the very beginning, the outset of this parable, giving away the point of the parable, giving away the entire answer to this uh, word story puzzle, which I always love. And this time Jesus says this, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. This is who Jesus is addressing in verse 9. And so he sets up this story. Let me tell you a story, Jesus says, all right? And you have to imagine this. Jesus is not just with his, his 12 disciples, but the sort of whole band of disciples, right? And the crowds and the Pharisees and scribes who are sort of on the outskirts of the sermon or of the parable, knowing that this parable, they don't really need to hear it. It's for all these poor people around Jesus. It's for them, bless their heart, as we may say in Texas. And you got the Pharisees on the outside like, yeah, people, listen up. This is for you. This is going to be really helpful. We know how to do this. We know how to do this. So listen up. So can you picture that? And I love, and I love that Jesus knows this is going down like this. I know, I love that he is not ignorant of those who come to him with pride and self-righteousness. It's, and it's, it's genius the way he goes about this. I love Jesus. So here, anyways, this is the story. He tells a story of two men praying at the temple. Uh, One of the men is a Pharisee, and he thanks God for being so uniquely righteous. This is like a religious goat. Anybody know what a goat is, like, as they say? Okay, for the older folks, a goat is the greatest of all time, is what it's an acronym for. Uh, This is like a religious elite, greatest of all time. I tithe, I fast, I am nothing like those people. I've got it together. This is one person in the parable. And then there's a tax collector which culturally would be like a total sinner, an obvious reject from the religious establishment. This person has exploited us in favor of the government and the empire. Who could love a person like this? It's the opposite of righteousness. You have a tax collector who is so ashamed of what he's done, who he is, that he stands at a distance from the temple, not even able to raise his eyes up to heaven and pray, and he's beating his chest, crying out for the mercy of God. God, be merciful upon me. What a stark contrast, right? And you would think that the Pharisees listening up on this would be like, oh, wait, the Pharisees? Of course, of course we've got it together, but you paint us so self-righteous. I wonder what they were thinking as they heard Jesus set up this scenario. One man justifies himself, the Pharisees, by comparing his righteousness to those who are less righteous. At least I'm not like those people, those thieves, those scoundrels. I'm not that bad. I mean, I have problems, but I'm not that bad. And he recounts all of the sort of 
religious hoops that he jumps through, the laws of fasting and tithing, which are holy and wonderful and good, but with a self-righteous heart serve in the opposite direction. And he, then the other, you have beating his chest in grief, hoping that God has mercy on him. So I want to, there's a few things I want to dig into here, but there's a particular detail that I think is really interesting about the way Jesus tells this story. And I think he might be revealing something to us. Notice that Jesus makes a point in the passage about where each person is standing. It's interesting. This is actually one of the only phrases sort of shared in the comparison of both of these people. The Pharisee is described as standing by himself in verse 11. And the tax collector is standing far off. Big deal, right? Well, right here in this part of the text with the Pharisee, there are actually three. Can I, can I Greek out for you in just a second? This is fascinating to me. In the Greek, there's three variations in the early manuscripts about what exactly is being described here in standing by himself. And I, it, it sounds like even the early church was wrestling with the play on words or some sort of connotation here that's portraying the Pharisee as standing on his own two feet, sort of standing on his own, standing by himself. And so you see uh, this variation in the early Greek manuscripts of this text he was praying but really sort of in a self-centered about himself with himself kind of way it wasn't just about how he was standing or where he was standing it was the way that he was standing in prayer as a self-justified person praying alone praying with himself maybe even praying to himself in some ways he was certainly praying less toward God at least the God who is and more by himself and to himself by contrast, the tax collector was, in verse 3, it says, uh, 13, says, standing far off. That's interesting, isn't it? And he wouldn't even look into heaven. Far off being from the temple, from the people. Standing far off. And he also asks God to be merciful, using a word that means something more like atonement, or right-making, or um, sort of... Um, forgiveness, expiation of sin, than it does just sort of a general mercy. Jesus uses another word for be merciful in uh, 6, I think verse 36. That's a different sort of connotation than what we see here. There's a little bit of some meat behind the text here. Okay, no more, no more uh, behind the text stuff here. But in, um, in this be merciful cry of this poor person, we find something really revealing, really honest about this man who can't even come close to the presence of God, but instead has to stand far off. And so Jesus poses this picture to both of them so that those who hear can have a little bit of an imaginative daydream, maybe like you're doing right now, like, which, which can I relate most to? Am I in this story? Is this about me? Is Jesus showing me something? Is he revealing something to me? This is the kind of thing that parables are meant to do, to provoke deeper questions within us about our need for God's help, his rescue, his forgiveness. And as Jesus said to begin, to wake those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. You see how that works? The self-righteous Pharisee stands alone in his righteousness and in prayer, but the repentant tax collector stands far off, finding himself in God's surprising company and being justified, Scripture says. 
wait a second. This isn't how the religious enterprise is supposed to, the machine is not supposed to work like this, right? The closer you are to the temple, the more educated, the more righteous, the more money you give, the more you fast and pray, you obviously have earned a closer seat to things like forgiveness, right? Things like the mercy of God. You've inched your way a little bit forward. Shouldn't that be the way things are? What Jesus unveils here is a really radical, kind of a shocking reversal about the upside-down nature of his kingdom, how God does things. And, in fact, if you understood the mercy of God in the first place, if you understood this really uncomfortable mystery of grace, you would know there is nothing one can do to justify themselves. Who is righteous among us? No one, not one. Can anyone boast in themselves, Paul talks about? No. So all we have left is to but receive the pure, gratuitous gift of God. Yikes, though. Because you know what that does, if that's true, all of the sort of mechanisms, the knobs we might turn, the way we might maneuver ourselves closer to the temple and in better favor with God, mean nothing. Instead, you hear the scandalous news of who God chooses to be near, not who we try to be near to on our own, but who God, first of all, chooses to be near, the humble, the repentant tax collector far off, those who are proud he makes humble, and those who are humble he exalts, Scripture says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, this all reminds me of something that he wrote in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, listen to who's choosing here, y'all, first of all. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Do you all do you have ears to hear what Jesus is sharing with us here? What he's revealing to us here about the nearness of God in our lives. The kinds of things like forgiveness and mercy that are given by him, not earned by us. Can you see this? I don't know how else to say it. I mean, I could like recite a poem or something but it's one of those things no matter how clever artistic you can be it's one of those things that you really just got to sit with in silence and say lord only you can open my eyes to this would you please which person are you in this story of course we're all going to say well i'm the i'm the lowly tax collector father Sean." you know that's what i want to say but when i ask god who who am i really in this story i get a different answer it's dangerous asking God questions <laughs> and listening. It's dangerous. Does your life and your self-image more tell the story of your own strengths and your own accomplishments? The ways you've built up your life, the successes you've had, the kind of a good person you are. Is that what your story and your self-image tell of you? Or does it tell of the accomplishments of God on a really broken person's life? And I'll just cut to the chase. Um, 
as successful and as wonderful and nice and good looking as most of you all are, I know. The reality is we're all on the same broken humanity level together. We're all those people. We really are. And it may take a little bit of help. It may take all the help from God to help us see that we indeed are those broken people, those needy people. How much money can you earn a year to secure the forgiveness of sins? Maybe you get that promotion. Does it bring the resurrection of the dead to you? You can be with all the right people. You can find yourself in all the right romantic relationships. You can have all the right friends and still find yourself totally and utterly alone without any sense of who you are. And all of those things cannot come from you grasping about in this world, securing it for yourself. The point is good news. Stop with that game. The good news is you have a heavenly father who comes to you, who gives you those things freely. And all the invitation requires is a welcome. Yes, God, help me see that. Help me to repent of the sort of story I tell myself that keeps me from the gift, the gift that you're trying to give me. Do you mostly approach God in prayer to help you prosper? To keep your comforts intact? Is that what you talk about most? Or to preserve your good health? Do you only thank God when things are going well? By the way, I'm, I can ask these questions because these are for me. Like, I, I know how this works. I get it. I'm the first one here. Like, well, how, do I, how do I help folks think about this? Well, this is how it works in Sean's life. Do you... Only thank God when things are going well and find yourself like, oh, you know, I should thank God even when things are not going well. When you don't get what you want, are you still expressing gratitude to God? Is that difficult? I'm sure I know it is. Maybe you fast and tithe. Maybe you do these things, but inwardly you hoard your ego and then you indulge in your material desires. I'll tithe as long as it doesn't get in the way of this other stuff that I want, this certain kind of life I want to live. Gosh, it's so hard, isn't it? But that's why so many godly people in here tithe 10%. Do the math. It's, it's an act of faith. 10% of their, yeah, pre-tax income, however you want to slice it, sacrificially. Not, and you don't know who that is. Not as some sort of showboating way of saying, look how righteous I am. But as a way of saying, God, I am a broken person who is impoverished without you and as an act of gratitude and out of pure joy i give i give to you people who fast regularly and pray there are those people in this church i know them who understand that no matter no amount of eating or substances they put in their body is going to satiate the deepest desires of their soul that only god can touch but only fasting, putting yourself in touch with the real hunger of the soul, and then turning to God in prayer saying, this hunger is actually for you. There are people in this church who do this. Not to showboat, you don't know who they are, but out of pure joy because they love to commune with God in this way. Because there in him is life, and they know this, they've experienced it. It's not that in this parable the tax collector had not sinned in similar ways as the Pharisees. It was that he was now sorrowfully aware of his sin, his selfishness, his greed, his power-hungry decisions at times. 
and how all of the arrangements that he made in his life of sin had sent him empty away, as the Song of Mary says. So what is the difference then between these two people? And which one do you think God would help you to see yourself as? Not the one you'd prefer to see yourself as. Which one do you think God might say, hey, there's, there's something about you here? And friends, God doesn't do this out of some sort of I told you so, abusive, heavy-handed kind of way. But it's more like a physician saying, you have a wound that needs to be treated. And if you don't, it's going to get worse. So please let me show you this wound and I can help. It's out of a mercy, out of a love that God reveals that we have work to do in our lives. The truth is Jesus keeps company with people like that, with broken, wounded, sinful people. People who recognize they need to be delivered. After all, was he not the God who was crucified with these people? Think of the company that Jesus kept with, even on the cross, but thieves and sinners. This is the God who is glorified and enthroned in his death among society's losers. The thieves, the rogues, the adulterers, and even tax collectors. Because no matter how far off those people, us, no matter how far off we stand from God, the grace of God finds a way to reach even further still through our repentance and bring us home. We're never too far off. So what keeps us from this kind of repentance? Certainly, like we just mentioned, the story of being self-made might keep us from this sort of repentance. Those self-images that we entertain about who we wish we were or who we think we could be. You may notice maybe another thing is you're really good and proficient at policing other people's sins rather than repenting of your own. I know we're all pretty decent at that, but you may be like an expert. (laughs) Pride is, is just another name for being out of touch with who you really are, who God has made you to be. Self-righteousness is just another way of saying I'm out of touch with reality and I have a side of judgment towards others with me. But with the mercy of God puts us in touch with who we really are, not to despair, not to be abandoned, but to bring us back to life, to heal us, to make us new, to form us in his image. God gets to say who you are and nothing else in this world. Look, you create yourself and then you can tell yourself who you are. But until that point, like my mom would say, I gave birth to you. I'm going to tell you who you are. And this is what God is reaching into our lives to do. So friends, take your life as you have it this morning. Where do you stand as the Pharisee? With a a sense of self that's just out of touch with who you really are. Where do you stand in judgment over the sins of others? Neglecting the repentance that you have to do in your own life. Lord, help us to see where we need your help. Humble us that we would be exalted in your kingdom. And friends, in just a minute, we're going to get a chance to not just talk about this, but to actually do this. We have a moment in the liturgy where we gather together on our knees and we confess this isn't just a thing we go through and pray every week. 
but this is an actual concrete and very meaningful action that I want to invite you. Be present to the words you say, to the pain you feel on your knees, the discomfort of the whole thing, of a whole community confessing its brokenness, and then watch what God does after. Listen to what the words you hear after the repentance and the table that you're brought to and the meal that you are fed. Notice what God is at work doing here this morning for you. Open your eyes. Pay attention. God is at work this morning. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.